I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to the London Review of Books podcast. I'm Thomas Jones. My guest this week is John Lanchester, whose many books include Whoops, Why Everyone Owes Everyone and No One Can Pay on the 2008 Financial Crisis, How to Speak Money, and most recently the collection Reality and Other Stories, two of which appeared in the NRB. He has a piece in the current issue of the paper on two colossal frauds carried out by two very different German companies. It's a review of Money Men, a hot startup, a billion dollar fraud and a fight for the truth by Dan McCrum, and also looks at Faster, Higher, Father, the inside story of the Volkswagen scandal by Jack Ewing. Hello, John, and thank you very much for talking with me. Hello, Tom. Thank you for having me on. So the first of these two scandals, the first one you discussed and also the, the, the earlier one, involves Volkswagen, the world's biggest car manufacturer, cheating on its diesel emissions tests. So maybe you could talk us through how that came to happen. So it's really a story about climate change and the fact that car manufacturers became uh, aware around the turn of the century that they had to do more to reduce their emissions. The track which gets all the kind of glamour and attention is to do the electric vehicles, companies like Tesla, Prius and things like that. But the other thing that manufacturers tried, led by Volkswagen, was diesel, because diesel engines are more efficient than petrol engines and they emit less CO2. So Volkswagen made this huge bet on what they called clean diesel, which had this slight technical problem that at that point it wasn't actually possible to do. It wasn't possible to make clean diesel engines at the price points um, and with the level of convenience that Volkswagen's consumers have been trained to expect. I mean, there were ways of doing that involved, you know, changing filters every few thousand miles and things like that, but they didn't think people would be willing to do that. They probably correctly didn't think people would be willing to do that. So Volkswagen makes these diesels and in order to get around the regulations controlling their emissions, particularly of um, nitrous oxides, which are these A, super polluting in climate terms, and B, incredibly noxious for all other, a whole set of health and environmental impacts. So they had low CO2 emissions, but catastrophically high nitrous oxide emissions. And um, Volkswagen simply cheated. They uh, fitted devices, which are in the car business are called defeat devices, that detect when a car is being tested, which is actually oddly easy because they're tested in tracks in laboratories and you can tell when the wheel's going around but the car isn't moving. And the software device that could tell from the regularity that the engine was running that it was a test and switched into another mode to temporarily reduce um, the NOx emissions in order to get around the um, tests. And that was the thing that was eventually caught by regulators and led to this colossal scandal. And it went on for years. It went on for years. And the thing that particularly exacerbated it was, I mean, people had thought that it was fishy, people in the car industry and regulators, particularly there's a very 
powerful regulator called the California Air Regulatory Board, CARB. Air Resources Board, I think. California Air Resources Board. Resources Board, that's right. Um, and they thought it was fishy for a long time. But there was no proof. And I think it's, I think the first cars that had the defeat devices were Audis, if I remember correctly. And then they started putting them in, in the diesels when they started rolling them out. It's around the kind of 2005s, if I remember correctly. I don't remember the exact dates. Um, and, and they sold, you know, millions and millions of cars, mainly, it has to be said, in the EU with these devices over, over a decade or so. And just to compound it, they were advertising Volkswagens for, as being beneficial from the climate point of view. They were saying, you know, cleaner, greener, healthier, better pictures of, you know, laughing puppies and smiling children. While, you know, knowingly, I mean, there's an argument about how many people knew and how high in the company they knew, but knowingly circumventing these, um, you know, regulations to keep the air clean. And the, I mean, the fact that their numbers were so much better than other car manufacturers. I mean, you'd think, did, did Renault, for example, not say, hang on a minute, it's just, you can't do this. These are, this is what, the so-called clean diesel, this is what you have to do to get your nitrous oxide emissions down or was there a sense people thought you know it's Vorsprung durch Technik it's kind of Volkswagen they're just so good at this stuff the technology is so great when I mean, you talk about sort of national stereotypes of capitalism and was there an idea you know it's just those German technicians are so good they've managed to achieve this that people accepted it I think a lot of people in the car business thought the numbers were suspicious other you know Mercedes had you know cleaner diesel but their cars were more expensive um I think in the book he, he he mentions engineers. I think he specifically mentions Mercedes engineers who just simply didn't believe Volkswagen were doing, were able to achieve the kind of numbers they were achieving. But part of the story, really, part of the, you know, what happened behind the scenes is that because Germany is so powerful, it's the most powerful country in Europe, and car manufacturer is the most powerful industry in Germany, that there was this sort of assumption that even if they were doing things, they'd get away with it that politicians were focused on CO2 emissions. That was the number that everyone was concerned about. And if, you know, there were sort of murky things going on with the nitrogen oxide, well, you know, that's not what the story is at the moment. And, you know, the regulators aren't really giving, European regulators aren't really particularly exercised about it. So, you know, something fishy is going on. Well, does it matter that much? I think that was a sort of mood music. And also there's a sense in which clean diesel... It sounds like an oxymoron. I mean, the idea, if you're really well, worried about now, climate yeah. change, you need to get cars off the road. You need electrified public transport. The idea that you can, you know, reduce emissions and help do anything effectively to fight climate change by selling millions of... of um, I mean, yeah, I mean, it obviously sounds ridiculous now, but it was, you know, explicitly government policy at the time. And in the UK, all the incentives. I remember I was buying a car in about 20... 14 I think and uh, when you looked at the way that the incentives were arranged it was basically government saying buy a diesel you know and that's you know it's not that long ago um, and it was you know all the government policy was directed towards it because they thought that the whole story was about CO2 emissions and nobody was paying any attention to NOx you know it's one of the reasons these dodgy numbers the fact that all the attention was pointing at the wrong places why is the city you know cars have got in general more efficient and cleaner but city air has got worse and you know, a big part of the responsibility for that is is on diesel engines. And as you say, I mean, clean diesel, you know, 
it's nuts. You know, it's like I mean, at the time of the credit crunch, you mentioned book I wrote about that. You know, so one of the funny things was um, because I'm half Irish, my mother was Irish. Now they talk a lot about the Celtic tiger at the time, but there's no such thing as a Celtic tiger. You know, in retrospect, well, hang on, what, you know, what were we thinking? And so similarly, you know, clean diesel actually, hang on a minute, no wait, that doesn't exist. <laughs> and when, and after the, the regulators in California sort of exposed this and showed that actually BW cars are emitting 40 times their claimed level of nitrogen oxides. When it came out, when the scandal was exposed, what what then happened? Well, there's, and there's one other piece there, which is that the, the European regulators tested cars in labs and didn't think it was possible to test them on the road because you have an astonishing variety of conditions in road traffic from, you know, starting an engine cold, running it up hills, stop start at city traffic. You know, it's very, very difficult. It's very difficult to generate a credible average number. It's technically very difficult to do. And um, it was actually academics, a team of academics at the University of West Virginia developed the technology to do it. And that's actually a very important part of the story because if those guys hadn't cooked up the gadget that let the emissions be tested in real world conditions, this the scandal would never have broken. So they just did that still in a lab, so that they managed to reproduce those real world conditions. In a- no, no, they are in, no, they 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 devised, they built a thing that you could actually go on the road. Oh, I see. Uh, and took it out and drove you know thousands of miles in real world conditions. And did VW try and say, well, of course, there's a difference in our lab. You know, you could, there's a difference between a lab and we gave the lab numbers. And well, the thing that I mean, did they try and fudge it? One of the things that really made the authorities, the regulators, have a sense of humour failure was that after they were presented with the evidence after CARB, the California board, said your emissions, you know, your emissions are orders of magnitude above what they're supposed to be. They fudged and lied and said, no, you've made a mistake and obfuscated and did everything they could to conceal the truth. And it wasn't just that, it, you know, it wasn't just that it was a failure. It was that it was a there's a difference between a failure and a lie. And it was, you know, the thing about VW, it wasn't a failure to make clean diesel and then, you know, oh, whoops, we couldn't do it. It was a failure and then a kind of systemic falsehood. Um, for It was a year that they spent stalling and lying and obfuscating. So they were selling these, these, these devices with these cars that were poisoning people and pretending and lying about it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and that was the thing where the um, American authorities really got very exercised. And I think it was also compounded by the fact that I mentioned earlier that they were being advertised as clean. So they, yeah, they say it, it's like selling cigarettes and claiming they're good for you. I mean, it, it, it's on that scale, right? Exactly. And so did anyone go to prison? One guy went to prison. The Americans indicted, I think it was six senior executives, including the head of the company, Michael Thomas Vinterkorn, who had been sent a memo about it in a, a packet of papers that would be delivered to his home, I think every Friday. They called it Vicky Post, for Vinterkorn, Vicky Post. And there was a memo, I think it was in May 2014, from a senior engineer saying exactly what was happening, describing in detail exactly what had been going on. But he didn't read it, according to his legal, legal defence. You know, a very detailed-minded, focused, obsessive, hard-driving person is how he's generally characterised, but he didn't read the memo. 
And he was one of, I think, six senior officials who were indicted by the American authorities. But the Germans don't extradite to America. I mean, not quite invariably, but almost never. I don't think it's a constitutional thing. I think it's just in practice they don't. And the one off Volkswagen person who went to jail, I think he'd been running their US operation. And he happened to be traveling back from America, I think from Florida, and was arrested at the airport. And it was you know, simply because he happened to be in the US. They um, arrested him as he was trying to leave the country. And he was tried and sentenced to, I think it was six years in jail. But the other, uh, the other figures uh, at the head of the company were tried in Germany under German law, and they were all acquitted. And they lost their jobs, presumably, even though the way were... I mean, the, the senior management was changed after it. Yes, uh, Vince Korn lost his job. I don't know about all of them, but... Um, uh, and in fact, no, that, they didn't all, all lose their jobs because uh, one of them subsequently became the next head of Volkswagen, Herbert Dies. But Vinterkorn stepped down, yeah, and um, uh, Herbert Dies was uh, appointed the new head of the company. And um, I think, no, quite a few of them stayed in, stayed in post. And, you know, and the defence was that, that, you know, it was a tiny handful of um, software engineers were the only people who'd known about it. I think it's fair to say that that's not universally, entirely believed as a defence. And they were fined? They were. I don't know the details. I mean, the, the, in the piece, you say the, um, it was the, the bill was £34 billion. Oh, the, sorry, I thought you meant the individuals. Yeah, 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 the, the company. And the company, yeah, and the American, because um, the kind of, one of the oddities of it was that, I think, was it 11 million cars were sold with these defeat devices? Almost all of them in Europe, but it was the American regulators who caught it and who went after it hardest and there was a class action lawsuit and Volkswagen had to agree to pay um agree to buy back actually the cars with the um uh, affected you know the, with the rigged engines or pay the difference i think there was a kind of complicated formula what what it would have been worth if it had been doing what it said it was doing and so on so on. and it was in the you know multiple thousands of dollars I think something like twenty, maybe thousand dollars on average per car. So they made that settlement in America, and then of course the question is, well, hang on a minute, what about in what about in the EU, which is where the overwhelming majority of the affected cars were, and that dragged on for many years in different regulatory regimes about what the nature of the settlement would be, because the rules were slightly different, so the affected vehicles were slightly different. There were, you know, multiple arguments about exactly what the level of compensation and the level of liability was. And also there was the other thing that, you know, the European regulators have less teeth because of this, the thing I already mentioned that, you know, because Germany is so powerful and the car industry is so powerful. So they made the statement admitting guilt in the middle of 2015 and the most recent chunk of money um, dispersed in the settlement was actually in Britain. I think that was £242 million and that, that was in February this year. So... You know, nearly seven years later, they're still they're still writing checks for it. You know, jurisdiction by jurisdiction. But can can we imagine a counterfactual situation in which it wasn't Volkswagen, but say General Motors who had been doing this? Would we then have seen that perhaps the U.S. regulators would not have looked so closely, and that maybe the EU would have been rather keener to spot irregularities? I mean, how much of this is? I mean, coming speculatively or or not speculatively, put down to um to you know nationalism, as it were, to, to national capitalism. 
Because one of the surprising revelations in the piece to me was this fact that the US regulators were so much more effective than the European ones. You know, you say they had far greater powers, far greater willingness to use them. And they're the only ones people really fear because they're the only regulators who get people sent to prison. But as you say earlier in the piece, the US is a capitalist society with a denuded to non-existent safety net for the poor, but multiple quasi-socialist exemptions and subsidies for corporations and the rich. And there is, there was a lot of talk about how Brexit would mean British markets would be flooded with substandard American crap like chlorinated chicken because the more stringent EU standards would no longer apply. And the people of Flint, Michigan, whose water was poisoned with lead for years, might disagree about the toughness of US regulators. So how, how much is this a kind of underhand or undercover industrial war between the US and the EU? Or is that paranoid? I'm not sure it's war is the metaphor, but I think what happens is that people, industries are regulated except when they've captured the regulator. And, you know, I mean, that's a well-known, regulatory capture is a well-known, much-studied thing. And so the the regulators who are completely captured in America are the finance regulators, which is why nobody went to jail for um, the credit crunch. And you had a thing with the savings and loan scandal in the early 80s, I think 1,100 bank executives, mortgage company executives went to jail. And then over the next 20 years, you had rules being rewritten and lobbying and legislation being changed. And so that when the credit crunch happens, nobody goes to jail. The scale of the scandal was worse, but the goalposts had moved and the regulator had been emasculated. And you do have a, a, a pattern whereby the more powerful an industry is in its own country, the less likely it is to be effectively regulated. So the car regulators in America are powerful partly because they, different states have different rules and they're not afraid to use them. Witness the thing about being California coming after Volkswagen. Whereas in, in Europe, we have much more stringent rules about internet companies, which by and large aren't European. Yeah, California presumably doesn't have such strict laws governing. No, funny enough, they were talking about bringing in a privacy law that was not exactly modelled on, but it was a lot closer to GDPR, which is the European data regulatory thing, which was much, much more stringent than any law in any other jurisdiction in the world. And in probably, I think, too much so, has all sorts of unintended consequences. It breaks all sorts of things that it's not really meant to break. And it's not clear actually quite how, how good a job it does protecting privacy, but it's caused, certainly causes absolute havoc for all sorts of, not just businesses, but NGOs, charities, all sorts of things like that. And the, I think the Californians were going to bring in a data law that was a lot closer to that. I and mean, I don't actually, I haven't followed that story. I don't know what happened to it subsequently. Um, but there definitely is the potential for states to regulate the internet. And there's a there's a thing that's gone, that's gone through in Texas, which if it's interpreted the way that the court seems to have handed it down, it's quite obvious that this Texas court actually didn't have a clue what it was doing. Basically, would ban spam filters. Um, it was it was saying that you know it was taking away the the capacity of internet companies to control speech. It's a bugbear on the political right the idea that internet companies censor right wing voices, and it was restricting that to such an extent that they also wouldn't be able to block spam. Um, so there definitely is potential for you know the individual states to cause absolute havoc, and the internet it's just they haven't done so yet, partly because it's such an important industry. You know, it's that point that it's more effectively captured in America. Though there's a lot more pushback now, 
especially you know from social media companies um but yeah by and large the rules are a lot stricter for the other guys big industries this is the lrb podcast if you enjoy listening to it you'll probably enjoy reading the london review of books to subscribe from just one pound per issue go to lrb.me forward slash listen that's lrb.me forward slash listen or click on the link below And spam, spam filters and all that <laughs> does bring us on uh, quite neatly to, to the question of Wirecard, who made their initial rise to riches in those early days of the, of the internet when partly through organising payments for the kinds of things that spam filters try to filter out. So offers for, you know, online pill sales and pornography and, and everything else. So do you want to talk us through the, the rise and fall of Wirecard? Well, Wirecard was starts in as you say in the porn business they then get into this is in the late 90s and the thing about porn in those days was that people paid to access it through dial-up modems they'd be the sort of specialist numbers that people would dial into and that was a license to print money but you had to be able to control and manage the payments so it starts in pornography they then get into payments in order to monetize the pornography they then take over a bank in order to get the ability to issue their own credit cards because the credit card companies are the kind of they're the 800 pound gorilla of online commerce and they have all sorts of rules and all sorts of control that they're not particularly keen to have publicized but they they, you know they are the cops on the internet visa and mastercard so wirecard takes over a bank in order to have the ability to issue its own cards and then suddenly as I say in the piece, it's you know from wanking to banking. It starts as pornography, and now they're an online, uh, online bank and payment services company. And the founder, a man called Paul Bauer, left the company. I think it's in two thousand seven. And there's after there's a presentation at a board meeting where the CEO shows this line going up forty five percent, or forty five degrees in profit. Sort of even faster than that. Forty five degrees, nine, sorry, going up like a rocket, and. Basically, in like in lots of internet things and payments too, you can grow fast or you can grow your revenue. You can make money or you can grow, but you can't do both at the same time because growth is expensive. You're trying to acquire new customers and new customers are expensive to acquire. But this thing about the forty-five degree angle, you know, it's it's kind of it's not possible. You know, if people could do that, they would do it. But in general, it's a trade-off. So, so Wirecard's numbers did look fishy and attracted attention from short sellers, who are people who try to make money from betting against businesses, uh, and uh, also from journalists who, who sort of heard rumours about, you know, maybe not all's not quite what it seems. And it was a journalist at the FT, Dan McCrum, who got bet- the bit between his teeth about Wirecard and started researching it and looking into, you know, taking the the hood off and looking underneath to see how it worked. And, you know, couldn't, kind of couldn't find the engine, you know, couldn't find the sources of the company's profit, most of which were purportedly in Asia. And it was his, he followed the story incredibly doggedly in the face of ferocious persecution and resistance and denunciation 
not just from Wirecard, but also from the German regulators. Wirecard complained to the regulators and the regulators went after Macron and colleague at the FT, claiming that they were part of a conspiracy to rig the market. They were working in league with short sellers to bet against Wirecard stock and profit from it. So, and basically, you know, presented with the evidence of this systemic fraud, drew exactly the wrong, um, not just the wrong conclusion, but, you know, blamed the people who were trying to expose the criminality. And the question of the criminality, I mean, it partly, as you say, I mean, where do you cross the line? And as it began making money by enabling these transactions that Visa and MasterCard shied away from because they were involved gambling and pornography and things which are legal in some jurisdictions and illegal in others and Visa and MasterCard don't really want don't want to touch it so at that point Wirecard steps in and says we're happy to handle these more or less dodgy transactions well and they were always they were always you know the the, the profit in those days of the of the payments business the profit was in the gray area of things that were as you say legal in some jurisdictions illegal in others um, things where you get a lot of complaints. The thing that the credit card companies absolutely hate is chargebacks. That's when you find an item on your bill, say, hang on a minute, I didn't buy that, or those things never came. Or you contact the credit card company, they refund you, and then they go after the merchant. Um, but they hate doing that. It's it's bad for their reputation. It's time-consuming. It's expensive. You know, it's bad for the whole idea of online commerce. And Chargebacks are common in, in in pornography, for one thing, but but also in, you know, work I dealt with a lot of, as you say, the things that disappear into your spam filter, which are sort of herbal supplements, supplements for, you know, muscle building, erectile dysfunction, acai berries, all that stuff. The stuff that, you know, Alex Jones, who's currently in the news, take us, he's had that disaster at his libel trial you know, makes his money selling supplements, that kind of thing. And that was Wirecard's sort of wheelhouse, that area, online gambling being another big one. And it's, you know, you 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 don't really get to see where a company crossed the line. And that stuff's not automatically illegal per se, but it's quite easy to see if they're operating in a kind of legal and reputational grey area that, you know, some lines got crossed quite early maybe and quite permanently and that kind of put it on the wrong path in terms of the the law and and the thing that they were specifically lying about was that they were claiming much higher revenue than they had and higher profit than they had they were just well it goes back to that 45 degree line 45 degree angle going up oh okay and you know this is in its accounts um it was a public company it was flipped on the stock market the whole pitch was that you know that it was a, it was a, what they call a unicorn a startup worth a billion dollars of which there aren't very many in Europe and particularly Germany had no equivalent tech startup it counts as a tech startup because it's in the payment space and they say look look at our shiny amazing figures look at our sales growing like a rocket revenue growing like a rocket so the, the question that then comes back is uh, oh great cool um where's the money because it's the first thing auditors and accountants do. It's says, well, you're generating all this cash. Fantastic. Where is it? And the sort of standard move for fraudulent companies, if you're trying to hide non-existent profits, is you say, oh, uh, I, 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 just, I spent it. 
And what Wirecard claimed to have spent it on was buying these businesses in Asia, which crucially aren't directly regulated by the European regulator. So it had these three huge subsidiaries, what they call third-party companies, dealing in, in Asian markets. And the Asian markets were both where it was making all its money uh, and also where all the money was. So we've got these colossal profit centres in Asia and um, they're earning huge amounts of cash and it's all in the bank. But, but allegedly, because this is, this is the lie, right? This is what this, yeah, these are the claims. Yeah, That's what it was claiming. Exactly. But the, you know, the, the question of what do you do if you're faking profits is you pretend to have spent the money. And what did they pretend to have spent the money on? Well, these Asian payment companies. And they were both where the money was being generated and also where the money, I mean, where the money was in a literal sense, which is that they were supposed to be in banks in Manila and Dubai. Right. But they kept, as the regulators got there, the, the money had been moved on to the, 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 the... Well, they would quite often, when they were, when they were audited, so the auditors would come around once a year and say, okay, can you show me your bank balance? And they would literally just move it from one bank account to another. And that was the thing that the first whistleblower inside Wirecard who got in touch with the FT had a copy of an internal report that showed them, proved that they were doing this thing called round tripping, which is literally, if you've got a subsidiary in Singapore, in Manila, Hong Kong, Shanghai, Mumbai, Dubai, wherever, you know when the auditors come to visit. So you literally just move the cash. So you've got your, you've got your 10 million... And, and you say, and you show it in ten different accounts, and you claim you've got a hundred million, as it were. Literally, sort of, you know, where's the where is the auditor that week? Okay, we'll move the money to Manila. Oh, he's in Dubai next week. Okay, we'll send the money to Dubai. It's the same cash. I mean, it's, it's just comically simple, but it just you know the auditors because the audits are snapshots. They don't travel through time and space. They just look at the the books today. So look today, here's the money. Say so, okay, fine, signed off on it. But that thing about the you know, that very simple thing about the non-existent money. They claim to have 1.9 billion euros on deposit in a bank in Manila. And after its excruciating process of obfuscation and lies and delay and being gone after by the FT and claiming it was all wrong, the thing that destroyed them was just simply an email from the bank saying... And they produced bank statements. They said, look, here, 1.9 billion euros. And there was an email from the bank in Manila saying these documents are spurious. And then there was a huge thing because nobody in Germany knew what the word spurious meant because it's not common. And there was sort of, even then, there was a kind of wheeled denial about maybe that means something else. But it's like you or I writing a piece of paper with Barclays on the top and you know, Tom Jones' bank balance 1.9 billion pounds. Oh, wow, he's a billionaire. And then... And then it taking it taking years for regulators and the accountants to get to the point of actually verifying with the bank and the bank is saying no, you know, never seen that piece of paper before in my life, and that's what destroyed Wirecard. And it was also as complicated that they, these things were all hidden in a series of shell companies, right? That's like in the British Virgin Islands, but then also this town and county Durham where loads of these companies were. Well, that was an earlier stage in the process when they were processing a huge number of credit card transactions with these, you know, codes that saying it's gambling, it's porn, it's supplements, things like that. Wirecard had thousands of shell companies created with directors in a town in Consett, County Durham. And the guy who set up the companies. Uh, it was a, a local in County Durham. We literally just approached people in the pub to say, look, will you, I think it was 50 quid 
initial thing and then 150 quid a year. Well, you sign this piece of paper and then just forward letters to this other address. And when the story came out, he says, well, you know, I've got four GCSEs. You know, I'm not a criminal mastermind. It was a, a bank in Germany said, do you want to do this and earn a few quid? And he said, yeah, fine. Right. So that's okay. So that's at an earlier stage in the process where, but the kind of, does the step, I mean, it's not necessarily legal to set up a company anywhere, but it is not legal at all, but it is crossing, but it's that gray area that you mentioned. And if you're, if you're doing that and you're claiming that gambling transactions are not in fact gambling transactions and you're reaching everything through these shell companies, it's quite a small step then to start. Yeah. I mean, just to be clear, the illegality, the illegality isn't the people in concert acting as company directors. The thing that is fishy is why would a German payment company based in Munich be setting up 1,100 shell companies via intermediaries in Durham to process payments with the with the parent companies back in the British Virgin Islands? I mean, speculatively, um, because they were, if you're operating in this grey area of processing, you know, millions of transactions for porn, gambling, poker and supplements, you're going to have a very, very high level of complaints and chargebacks and charges that the credit card companies regard as suspicious. So you need a lot of companies to put the payment claims through. So if you have 1,100 shell companies processing, you know, I don't know, a million claims a week each, you have a far greater range of options. So if, you, if you're doing it through one company, the credit card companies would would catch the fact that you had this level of disputed and grey area claims. Whereas if you have that number, it makes it much easier to get them. Partly through because one of the simplest things they did was just put the wrong code on. There's there's meant to be a code for every kind of every merchant transaction. It's a four digit thing where it says if it's you know bookshop, supermarket, parking, porn, gambling, poker, supplements, and they flag. They flag those and start to look for patterns of companies that are dealing in those areas. So it was just useful having lots of intermediaries just to hide how much of it they were doing. And if you, you know, somebody gets a whole series of chargebacks with one of these, because that, that berry supplement, you know, those supplement businesses, a lot of them are just outright scams. They're, they're attempts to get someone's credit card detail and keep charging them until they complain, until they notice. Um, and if you're in that business, you know, you, you're, Thing gets blocked, you effectively get burnt. You just immediately switch to using a different merchant ID, and that's why having thousands of merchant IDs was so useful. And the but but the round tripping that was exposed, so the, and the whistleblower. So it was the the mother of someone who worked in Wirecard's Singapore offices. Yeah, pa- it was a man called Pav Gill in, in in Wirecard Singapore offices, who'd I think worked on the report where um, which exposed the. I can't remember if you worked on it, if you'd seen it internally. That, that proved the thing about round tripping and became absolutely outraged. But, you know, they were quite, it was quite scary. They were quite a scary company, Wirecard. And there are all sorts of, you know, things that are, you can't prove, but they're very murky about associations with um, organised crime and, you know, Libyan mafia and things like that, you know. So it was frightening. And he knew what was happening about the round tripping, but, um, you know, was isolated and, and worried and had been complaining about it and not sure what to do. So it was, it was his mum was the person who sent it to the FT, sent this packet of, of I've forgotten how many pages it is, but it's a lot of documents. And she, you know, she, as it were, blew his whistle. <laughs> 70, 70 gigabytes. You've put in a 70 gigabytes of data. And then, yeah, that's right. Because there's a, the wire card, I mean, it could have been 
PayPal, as it were. But it yeah. well, it was pretending to be PayPal, and this is an area where you know you're talking about fraud and regulation. Although the American authorities don't, on the finance side of it, they throw fewer people in jail. But um, it's very difficult to imagine a fraud of that magnitude happening at, uh, in the American payments business. And actually, oddly enough, you know, the scale of the regulatory failure is absolutely colossal. And it comes down to the fact that, you know, the German regulator, Baffin, believed the crooks, you know. I mean, there, it's difficult to think of a financial thing quite like it, you know. They've shown the evidence and they just chose the wrong side. And is that partly that it wouldn't happen in the US because Visa and MasterCard, which is so powerful, and they're based in the US and they because something like Wirecard is clearly really bad for them that Visa and MasterCard don't want something like my Wirecard doing all this stuff so that there the extent there is regulatory capture in the US that would have prevented it part yeah it's that partly it's also that they're far more short short selling is much more active in America it's a much more developed part of American capitalism part of the reason that they got away with it so long was that short selling is frowned on in Germany. They regard it as a kind of Anglo-American, Anglo-American capitalism at its worst. The idea that you can bet against a company and try and help that company fail. They find that very repugnant. So, but in America it's different. And you would have had people looking at Wirecard books much harder. You know, there would, I think it would be much more systemic scrutiny of, um, you know, just, just where, the profit was coming from because of this extremely suspicious thing about the, you know, that 45 to 45 degree angle line. I think that would have been much harder to get away with in the States. And Wirecard came to a very different, and the people involved came to a very different end from, from Volkswagen, that Wirecard has gone bankrupt, no longer exists. Yeah. I mean, within, um, you know, within, not exactly within minutes, but very, very quickly, once the thing from the Manila bank came through saying, you know, you don't have 1.9, the 1.9 billion euro you claim to have doesn't actually exist. Um, it imploded very abruptly. And the person who, I mean, known to be, known to be responsible is a bit strong, but, you know, whose fingerprints are all over the murder weapon, this guy, Jan Marsalek, who's the guy who set up the subsidiary companies in Asia, which were fraudulent. And he went to a private airfield in Vienna, paid 8,000 euros in cash and a suitcase to the two pilots, flew to Minsk and hasn't been seen since. That was in um, early 2020. And uh, he's, the, the, uh, he's on the um, Europol's list of most wanted, and he's thought to be in Moscow. And uh, a bunch of the other senior executives are awaiting trial as we speak. So that's going to be quite interesting. And some are, some have died or have been said to have died? The guy who ran PayEasy, which was one of the big... I think it was the one based in the Philippines. His family said he died of an infected boil. And um, McCrum, I think, makes it quite clear that he's not not everybody believes that. And so, no, it's a proper... Um, in terms of sort of the speed and completeness with which the fraud unravelled, it was a classic example of that Hemingway thing of, you know, people going broke in two ways, gradually, then suddenly. And, you know, Wirecard really was like that. It was this very, very gradual exposure of the... Truth, which lots of people didn't believe because they didn't want to believe it, and then sudden, total implosion. I mean, those outcomes of those these two. I mean, there's quite an interesting two stories to put together. I mean, I suppose one question is why? What was it about them that that made you want to put them together? Now, the thing that interests me, I think, was that 
it contradicts the image and the self-image of how modern Germany works. These are this thing called the DAX 30, which is the 30 biggest companies in Germany. It's their equivalent of the FTSE or the American stock index, the Dow. The two DAX 30 companies imploded through fraud over five years. It's pretty unusual. And Volkswagen survived basically because it's bigger. It's bigger and the fraud happened more slowly. I think if the whole bill had landed in one go, I think it's about 35 billion euros now. Um, if that had been a single check, that would have been, yeah, it probably would have still have survived, but it would have been a very difficult thing. Uh, but it you know, trickled in, as I say, it's still trickling in earlier this year, that bill. Whereas Wirecard was like abrupt, one minute there, gone the next. And that's an extraordinary thing to happen in a, in a country whose reputation is very much about stability, stolidity, probity, prudence, you know, good accounting, non-speculative, gradual accumulation cap type capitalism. Um, and I thought the common thread of them for me was a kind of complacency that, you know, Volkswagen felt that they knew better than anyone else. They're the car people. We know how cars work. We don't need to be told how to do this. We're going to do diesel. You say you, have, you want it to pass these tests, but we know better. And the thing about Wirecard was that, you know, everyone, regulators, the German financial press, said, no, no, we, we're not Anglo-Saxon speculators. You know, this is a good, this is a good solid German company. They're just jealous. And the, the common thread of a kind of complacency, I felt, that was the thing that seemed interesting to me, this sort of particular, distinctive, I mean, it's not that we don't have our own scandals and crises, but it, there, there's something rather distinct about that, that tone. But the differences between them, I mean, the sense that Volkswagen sort of is what is a much older company. I mean, it does actually make a lot of money. It's really, I mean, it's sort of a cornerstone of the German economy. It employs 600,000 people around the world. If Volkswagen were to collapse, it would have massive implications for all sorts of things. Whereas Wirecard, you can actually, apart from the, the people who've disappeared, the disappearance of Wirecard hasn't had wider repercussions, which the collapse of Volkswagen would have. Well, it's part of, you know, financial things are spun out of thin air all the time, as Wirecard was. There's plenty of other payment companies out there. I think the thing about Volkswagen is because, they, you know, they do actually make something. They make cars that people buy. And part of the sort of self-image of German capitalism is to do with that, you know. If you can make something that people want to buy, you'll always have a business. And that is not the full and entire truth of all aspects of how the modern economy works, but it's, it's, it's partly true. Actually, oddly enough, it's also part of the problem with Germany is because it makes more stuff than it consumes. So they're very dependent on other economies' health. They're, in a sense, dependent on other people's stimuluses and well-being. So that's a, that's a, that's a different story. So, you know, Volkswagen was always going to have a viable business. The question was how damaging the fines and the scandal and the reputation would be. And the thing that's interesting from that point of view is that the guy who took over from Thomas Vinterkorn when the diesel scandal erupted, Uncle Herbert Dies, um, and he was forced out of his job last month on the 22nd of July, um, sent out, it's a Friday, sent out an announcement to staff saying, you know, it's the summer holidays, uh, have a nice break, it's been challenging times, but we're doing really well, thanks for your hard work. And then a few hours later was sacked with no preamble. And he was the guy who was brought in to kind of clean up after the diesel gate. And he's led a big pitch for electric cars, basically correcting the mistake that Volkswagen met when they bet on diesel rather than electric. 
And it looks as if, well, he, he'd done a couple of things wrong. First thing he did wrong is he's not a Volkswagen lifer. Volkswagen prefers to promote people internally. And uh, his successor is someone who's worked at Porsche, which is their sister company. And it's, you know, it just prefers lifers. And he wasn't, he'd worked, come from BMW. So that's mistake number one. And mistake number two is he, if you're doing, a, you know, electric cars are very software dependent. They're computers on wheels, even more than normal cars are. And he'd bet big, invested on in this unit called Carriad to make all Volkswagen software, you know, one, bring it all together and make it one place. Carriad stands for Car I Am Digital, which is, I mean, it's sort of bogglingly terrible as a name. And I've said, well, I wonder if, car, you know, the car bit is somehow CAR sort of meant to be, we care. We care about the environment, evidence to the contrary. Um, but but Carrier has this problem, it doesn't work very well. And they had this big launch for a, company, a car called, I think it's the ID3, which is meant to be like the Golf, which is their best-selling car, but electric. And then it was meant to have software updates that you could download over the air, which is what Tesla has, but that didn't really work. You had to take it back into the factory to get the software updated and so it just sort of hasn't done what it's meant to have done because software is difficult i mean car manufacturing is difficult too but they're different skill sets and they're trying to catch up with tesla who had a huge lead in that area and they're not doing a very good job of it and that was the third thing he did wrong is he kept talking publicly about how much he admired tesla he said tesla's a well-run company tesla's this tesla's that he once joked that he wished you know i think the te- volkswagen is based in wolfsburg the big Tesla plant is about 100 miles away and he's wishing it was 100 miles closer so they could actually see it out the window of Wolfsburg to give the, give the workers a kind of jolt to the system. And that was very, very unpopular. Uh, it looks as if the workers' representatives on the board, you know, they're very, very powerful at Volkswagen and the workforce hated him always going on about Tesla um, and holding them up as a role model. And so those three things together seem to have been what what's done for him. So in a sense, that's he's another casualty, you know, seven years after the story broke, he's kind of another casualty of Dieselgate, another casualty of this whole wrong bet they made that led to the emissions scandal and is still having consequences now. John Lanchester, thank you very much. Thanks very much, Tom. You can read John Lanchester's piece in the latest issue of the LRB, along with Lali Khalili's review of Disorder by Helen Thompson and Frederick Jameson on Ben Pasta's detective novels. The LRB podcast is produced by Anthony Wilkes. The music is by Kieran Brunt.